Whether we realize it or not, we all walk around like kings or queens of our lives. And I don't mean that in that we all drive around in Rolls Royces or go on million dollar shopping sprees, not what I'm talking about. What I mean is that even though as Christians we know that Jesus is the true king of our heart, our sinful hearts can tempt us to put ourselves as king, to pursue our own power, control, or pleasure more than the will of God. At home, we might say that we are king of our castle and get preoccupied with making it look as best we can, as clean as we can, or as comfortable as we can. We might think of our children or our parents or our spouse as there to serve us. And at work, we might say, you know, if I were king for a day, I would give her to so-and-so, make better decisions, give us all a raise. We can fantasize about what we would do if we were given the money, control, or prestige to do whatever we wanted. And it's not that all those things are bad in and of themselves, but usually where we get in trouble is when the cold, hard reality hits us that we're not in charge. When the sink in the kitchen is leaking again. When our boss makes a boneheaded decision again. When the children are disobeying again. And even the little things can seem like they refuse to bow down to our authority. The light turns red right in front of us. Traffic starts backing up on 95. Our favorite TV show gets canceled. Whenever things don't go our way, we tend to get upset. Upset at our family members, upset at our friends, our boss, cruel fate, even God. But it's worse, though, because instead of humbling ourselves when we realize what little control we actually have, sometimes we double down in our attempt to take the throne. And our sin will do whatever it takes to try to get what we want. Lie, get angry, manipulate people. We'll work all the angles. Or sure, we'll say with our lips that Jesus is the king of kings and in charge of all things, but our actions tell us what's really going on in our heart. When we start grasping for control like that, we're acting like God's kingship has failed, like we know better. We act like we have to do these things because it's the only way to get things done, the only way to protect or provide for ourselves. Our passage today is John 18:28 through 19:16, and we'll see some of these same ideas on display with the Jews and with Pontius Pilate. We'll see that each of them rejected Jesus as king for different reasons, but ultimately because they wanted what they wanted. They were trying to take care of themselves and their way of life and set themselves up as king of their lives. And that's the main warning for us in our passage. But we also see the beauty of the kingship of our glorious Savior, that we have a true and better king who came to save us from the hopelessness and brokenness of trying to be our own king. The main idea we see in our passage is that Jesus is the king of kings, truth itself, who humbly came to save us from our sin. I'll say it again. Jesus is the king of kings, truth itself, who humbly came to save us from our sin. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have three points. 
the first one will be the longest, so hang in with me. Uh, and we'll call that one the Battle of Kingdoms, where we'll see both Pilate and the Jews battle back and forth with each other, trying to take control of the situation and advance their own kingdom. Then we'll see that the true king suffers for his people and leaves us an example to follow. And lastly, we'll see that the true king is rejected by the Jews and by Pilate. Let's start reading. John 18, verses 28, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. What we see in these verses is the battle of kingdom. Both the Jews and Pilate are both striving, trying to get the upper hand here, trying to get accomplished what they can and prop themselves up as much as they can. But we also see Jesus testify that he is the true and better king whose kingdom is unfathomably different than anything the Jews or Pilate can strive for. Take a closer look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. We're already getting a glimpse into the hearts of the Jews and what's important to them. They didn't want to enter Pilate's headquarters because that would make them ceremonially unclean, and then they couldn't take part in the Passover festivities. There's great irony here. They've been conspiring against an innocent man, and not just any innocent man, the true and eternal Passover lamb. That part doesn't bother them. But what they are afraid of is becoming unclean so they couldn't take part in the feasts and festivals. That's their time. That's when they're on full display, where they're getting glory from the rest of the Jews. They're more concerned about their prestige and honor than about justice and truth. And it doesn't get any better from here. Take a look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Listen to the opening shots here. We're not listening to two objective parties who are trying to uphold justice and determine if Jesus is really innocent or guilty. We're listening to two bitter enemies who hated each other. We know from secular historians that the Jews and Pilate already had a rocky relationship. So while Pilate's question sounds innocent enough, it's a bit of a power play. The Jews had already laid out their case to Pilate in some form because he'd authorized the Roman soldiers to arrest him. But, but Pilate wants to remind the Jews, I'm in control here. I'm not just going to rubber stamp this. You need me. So he asks them what accusation they have. Well, this irritates the Jews. Uh, they've never been a fan of Pilate, and they hate that they even have to deal with him. But he's a necessary evil. They had some authority to carry out their own laws and their own punishments, but they didn't have authority to crucify anyone, and that's what they want the Romans to do. Pilate knows this, so he brings Jesus inside, where he knows the Jews won't follow, so he can question him further. Maybe there's something Pilate can unearth here that will be useful information to him that he can use to his advantage. So Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? There's more than a hint of disdain here. Jesus doesn't look like a king to Pilate. His followers had scattered, so he didn't have any entourage with them. He didn't dress like a king, didn't look like a king. But Pilate wants to find out more, just in case this man really is a threat to Pilate or to Rome, or two, to see if he can expose some weakness or division amongst the Jews. After all, the Jews want Jesus dead, so there must be something going on here, and it could be valuable information for Pilate. Let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 34, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Pilate makes it clear that Jesus is nothing to him. He's not a Jew, and clearly Jesus can't be such a great king if his own people would turn him over. But he still wants to know more. Why would the Jews hand over their king? Or if they're just making this all up, what could Jesus possibly have done to make the Jews turn on him like this? So far, we've seen both the Jews and Pilate striving for their kingdoms, trying to get what they want, trying to gain an advantage over the other. But let's see how Jesus describes his kingship. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus confirms his kingship, but he says it's not of this world. He's making the case that he's not like other kings. His kingship isn't locked into a territory or a group of people. If it was, Jesus said his followers would be trying to rescue him. But Pilate clearly isn't tracking with what kind of king Jesus is claiming to be. So he follows up with a short reply. So you're a king. Pilate is trying to put Jesus into a box that he can understand. He gets human kings. He gets that the Jews would want a human king to get free from Roman rule. But Jesus is trying to explain, you don't have a box that can fit me. There's an undertone in his reply. You say that I'm a king, but you don't understand what kind of king I am. Let me explain. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. Why? Set the Jews free, start a revolution, wait for it, to bear witness to the truth. What? 
What kind of king comes with the goal of bearing witness to the truth? And what does that even mean? But wait, Jesus goes further. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What a radical claim. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But listen to Pilate's cynical reply in verse 38. What is truth? Pilate doesn't get what Jesus is saying. It's nonsense to him. Jesus told him he was a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. He told him that he has a special mission, but it's to bring forth the truth, and that everyone who is of the truth listens to him. But that doesn't mean anything to Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about otherworldly things or truth. He cares about this world. He cares about power and position and glory. And Jesus' kingship doesn't seem to have any of those things. And so it's useless to him. Now let me take a second to pause here because it can be easy to shake our heads at Pilate. But we can act like this too, can't we? When we're reading God's word, it's easy to read the parts about heaven. It's easy to read the parts about God's love for us. We even enjoy reading the parts that point out other people's sin. But when we read something that would convict us and something that's important to us, that's when we start with the excuses. That's, that's not what that really means. My situation is different. God doesn't want me to do that. Yes, he does want you to do that. You don't want to do that. Jesus doesn't come to take over part of our life. We don't get to pick and choose like a buffet. Oh, I like these things, but I'm not so fond of these things. Jesus came to be king over all of our life. And I'll say something that's going to convict all of us, myself included. But if we were to think back this past week and tally up all the things we worked toward, all the things we thought about, all the things we desired, how many of those things would be about our own kingdom and our comfort? And how many of those things would be about God's kingdom? Do we find ourselves thinking about God's kingdom 24-7 or just on Sunday mornings? Listen, Jesus didn't come to be king from 11 to 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. He came to be king over the entire universe, over everything and everyone. He came to save us from the slavery of our sin to make us part of his eternal kingdom. He came to show us that we don't know what's best. He came to tell us that he is the way, he is the truth, he is our life. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Our old self has died, and now we live for Christ. It's not about trying to make our own little heaven on earth with our job or our house or anything else. Our king has come. And just like he had a mission, he has a mission for us to go and make disciples of all people to bear witness to the truth, the one and only king. Pilate asked, what is truth? But truth isn't a what, it's a who. And if we really believe that, that who changes everything. But not for Pilate. What is truth? Back to verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. 
So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate tells the Jews that he doesn't find any guilt in Jesus. And he probably means it. Jesus probably just seems like a religious nut to Pilate, but doesn't have any real threat either to Pilate or to Rome. And he could just release Jesus and be done with it. But he doesn't. He's still working all his angles. Because he's also worried that if he just releases Jesus, then the Jewish leaders will make more trouble for him. They've already been making trouble. So he comes up with a plan that would make any Washington politician proud. He concocts a political maneuver. The Jews have this custom. They release one prisoner at Passover. So if the Jews ask for Jesus, great. The Jewish leaders are stuck with someone who gets on their nerves, and it's not Pilate's fault. And if they ask for Barabbas, that's still no skin off Pilate's nose. It doesn't matter to him if Jesus is innocent or not. And the Jews will go away quiet and content because they got what they wanted. We know how this turns out. The Jews choose Barabbas at some behind-the-scenes urging from the Jewish leaders. Tragically, ironically, the crowd of Jews wanted a revolutionary, a robber, over the God-man who came to save them. Their long-promised and long-hoped-for Messiah. The same Jesus who healed the sick and made the lame walk and the blind see, who had fed thousands and preached the good news, they wanted a murderer over that man. And some of the more revolutionary-minded of them probably wanted Barabbas because that's exactly the kind of savior that they wanted. They wanted to follow their own king and their own desires more than the one true king. And that's us again, too. Because all too often, we're willing to turn a blind eye or minimize or justify our sin to get what we want and advance our kingdom. We're willing to do whatever it takes and work all the angles. We've all been there. I can't tell the truth. Do you know how much trouble I'd get in? I can't love that person. You know how they are. When we choose to ignore or disobey Jesus to get what we really want, or to protect or take care of ourselves, we are choosing Barabbas over Jesus. We're saying that these problems in front of us are so big, so scary, that that's more important than the sin of disobeying Jesus or the sin of making ourselves our own king. And none of us are innocent in these things. But friends, there is grace here if, if you have been given the grace to be convicted of these things, God has also given you the grace to repent from them. Because we are not alone and powerless. Jesus broke the power of sin in our lives, and he lives inside of you, empowering you to obey and calling you to follow in his footsteps and to submit to his kingship. We just need to remind ourselves of that, trust it, and step out in faith. One of the great ironies we see here in this passage is that both the Jews and Pilate are doing everything they can to try to control the situation, and they think they are, but who's actually in control is King Jesus. He had already prophesied that he would be lifted up and crucified. 
And we already know from eternity past that God the Father had always planned to send his son to save his people. So while Pilate and the Jews think they're in control and are doing everything they can to get what they want, it is actually Jesus, the King of Kings, who is advancing his kingdom through and in spite of these would-be kings. Our second point from the text this morning is that the true king suffers for his people. The true king suffers for his people. And we should notice a huge contrast here between Jesus and the Jews and Pilate. Everything the Jews and Pilate have done up to this point has been about themselves. And, and often to try to minimize or, or get rid of unpleasant or painful circumstances that would come their way. But here we see Jesus humbly, lovingly moving toward suffering on behalf of his people. Let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you know that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he became even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate probably had a couple motives here. Maybe he thought that the Jews would be satisfied if he had Jesus punished and then released. But he also probably wanted to drive the knife in a little bit. Do you see your king? Do you see how ridiculous it is for this man to be your king? And as Christians, this should be a striking visual for us. Our Savior, completely innocent, king of heaven and earth, standing there, beaten, bloodied, mocked, humiliated, weak, dressed up in a mocking robe with a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus isn't there because he deserved it. He's not there because the Jews or Pilate outsmarted him or overpowered him. He's there willingly, obediently, out of love for his people. And unlike any king the world has ever known. Where the world sees weakness and shame, we see unfathomable love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His disciples had abandoned him. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. The Jewish leaders, who should have been the most prepared to recognize him and embrace him, were actively trying to murder him. And the crowd outside, who just days before had shouted Hosanna in the streets, 
We're getting ready to shout, crucify him, in the next few verses. What courage and obedience, like Doug talked about last week. Jesus knew this was coming. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, God, if there's any way for this to pass from me, please. But then he ended with, but not my will, but your will be done. And he obediently submitted to the Father, enduring the suffering and shame to save his people. And there's something wonderfully, beautifully powerful for us in this passage too. Just like we need to follow Jesus' example of seeking after God's kingdom, we need to follow his example of how to humbly obey even in suffering. Sometimes we can get too preoccupied with why we're suffering or how to get out of it. And sometimes that tempts us to be angry at God or even do whatever we can to try to get out of it ourselves. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus is our perfect example. He was completely innocent, something that none of us can say, and yet willingly, obediently took the punishment our sins deserved. And not just on the cross, taking the full wrath of God against our sins, but in every step leading up to it. In his last days, when most of us would be trying to make life as comfortable as we can and enjoy the last few moments, he spent pouring it out for his disciples. When they argued over who was the greatest, he gently shepherded them back to what was really important. He spent his last days warning them and encouraging them and preparing them for when he wouldn't be there anymore. And then seeing Pilate and the Jews before him, hurling insults and false accusations back and forth, he didn't strike back. Beaten and bloodied, mocked and jeered at, he didn't open his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 tells us, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So do we find ourselves suffering like Jesus? Or do we lash out at God, at our loved ones, at whoever we're in conflict with? Do we find ourselves submitting to and obeying God in suffering? Or do we find ourselves doing whatever we can to get out of it, no matter what we're doing? If you're like me, it's too easy to lash out. It's too easy to try to take matters into our own hands. But friends, there is hope here. There is power here. Because we are not alone. Jesus went before us. 
in our flesh on our own. We are weak and we will fail. But we can follow in his footsteps because the shepherd of our souls is with us and lives inside us. And by his power, we can humbly obey the Father, even in deep suffering. But are the Jews moved by Jesus' example in suffering? Do they have pity on him? Are they satisfied by Pilate's punishment? Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The Jewish leaders finally blurt out their true accusation. It's not that Jesus was trying to set himself up as a political king. It's because he's claiming to be the son of God. And that would change everything for them. They're in a good place. They've got control over the Jewish people. The Jewish people look up to them and respect them. A Messiah would ruin everything. They wouldn't be the center anymore. And so they accuse Jesus of blasphemy and double down that he deserves to die. Now, if we could see Pilate's face at this point, he'd probably be white as a ghost because the Romans were a pretty superstitious bunch and this man that he had just mocked and had beaten apparently claimed to be the son of God. So he's a little nervous and he quickly brings Jesus back in for more questioning. He needs to get to the bottom of this. But Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's worried questions and that makes Pilate angry. Wait a minute, you're not answering me? I'm in control here. Don't you know that I can put you to death? But Jesus exposes Pilate's authority for what it really is. You would have no authority at all except for what has been given to you from above. Commentators aren't exactly sure who Jesus is referring to in the next verse when he says that he who turned me over to you has the greater sin. The most compelling suggestion seems to be Caiaphas, the high priest, but the point is not lost on Pilate. The one who is on trial, Jesus, is becoming judge. And even though he just told Pilate, God is the one in control here, but you and Caiaphas will still be accountable for your actions. We see Pilate flee into self-preservation mode again as we go into our last point for this morning, that the true king is rejected. The true king is rejected. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. While Pilate's fear that there may be something divine about Jesus causes him to try to get Jesus released one last time, there's something he's even more afraid of, and it stops him right in the tracks. The Jews knew they had an ace up their sleeve. You're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. Everyone who, who sets himself up as a king opposes Caesar. They had Pilate right where he wanted him. There was no choice in Pilate's mind anymore. His kingdom that he'd worked his whole life toward was at stake. Even though he thought Jesus was innocent, even though he was scared there might even be something divine about this man, he was more afraid of losing the kingdom he'd worked toward. So Pilate brings Jesus out for judgment and asks the Jews one last time, shall I crucify your king? And just like we saw Pilate's ultimate rejection of Jesus, we see the Jews' ultimate rejection of Jesus, and not only Jesus, but even of their faith itself. We have no king but Caesar. It was so important to them to get rid of Jesus that they weren't even pretending to be faithful Jews anymore, waiting for their Messiah. They didn't even try to caveat that, well, sure, we we respect Caesar, but ultimately we acknowledge God's authority. All they cared was that Jesus was messing up a good thing they had going. And they were willing to publicly proclaim sole allegiance to the hated Roman Caesar if it meant getting rid of Jesus. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Friends, it is easy to get distracted by the kingdoms of the world. It's easy to spend our life working towards building a kingdom for ourselves here on earth. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that those things don't satisfy. They're always elusive, just a little bit far off. And, And they always will be. The world promises us a lot, but always leaves us feeling empty and broken and wanting more. And it's for this reason Jesus came to earth. For this reason he was born. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to bear witness to the greatest truth we could ever hear. That we have a king. And not just any king, the king of kings who can save us from ourselves, who can save us from our sin, who created us to be satisfied only in him whose will is always accomplished, who has power over everything, and who loved us so much that he willingly and humbly suffered for us in our place. While we were still sinners, while there was nothing good or beautiful about us, he gave up everything for us and left an example for us to follow. And we can follow him because we are not alone. God did not leave us to do this on our own. He is with us. Our king lives inside of us. He empowers us. He's transforming us to be more and more like him. To seek his kingdom. To love like he loves. And to obey like he obeyed. And one day our king will return. 
And when he does, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one true king of all kings and that you left your kingship in heaven to come down to be born for us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to suffer the punishment our sins deserved. Father, help us seek your kingdom and not our own. Help us follow in your footsteps obediently and humbly obeying the Father, even when it hurts, even when it's hard. Thank you that we are not alone but that you went before us and that you are with us and that you are empowering us. Jesus, thank you. Amen.